Well, it is a delight to look out and see so many people. By necessity, the last couple of these have been fairly small, and uh, it's wonderful to look out and see many people coming uh, to a special Monday Thursday service. And um, it's one of my favorite services in the church year uh, because it is fairly focused and somewhat of a calm before the storm for a pastor. Uh, maybe you can identify with that as well. Um, and it's interesting, it occurred to me as we were singing and I was thinking through this evening, um, usually when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we do that because it's the first Sunday of the month. But tonight we do it because it's the last Thursday that Christ was on this earth. And that brings a special uh, layer to it, a special awareness of it. But before he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus did something else that's very special that we read about in John 13. And so I want to begin by walking us through the beginning of that evening, that Monday, Thursday, and look at John 13, verses 1 through 17. If you would prefer to have a Bible open in front of you, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can open one of those up to page 1673, or these scriptures will be on the screen behind me as well. But as we enter the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, we read these words. It was just before the Passover feast. And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved those who, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so as we walk through this evening, this is a picture of the full extent of Jesus' love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, which was obviously a cue to his guests that he was now taking the role of a servant, taking the form of a servant. And the last time through reading John uh, this past fall in our banding together journals that we, we do, these two verses really stood out to me, verse 3 and 4. And it hit me anew and afresh the contrast between Christ's power and authority and his identity and purpose, but also his humility and service. It was so remarkable to see that tremendous power, authority, identity, purpose that Jesus had, but also to see his humility and his service. He knew who he was and he knew what he was here to do. And the moment was drawing near. With the setup in verse 3, where we're told that he knew all the Father had put that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, it almost seems like verse 4 would be a display of that power and authority. We've just talked about the power and authority, and so you think it's a setup for a display of power and authority. Something along the lines of how I might write this. He zapped Judas into thin air and launched his revolt over Rome and the Sanhedrin, something like that. But that's not what we read at all. 
Instead, we get him leaving the place of honor to humble himself and then selflessly serve his followers. It's borderline scandalous behavior, as evidenced by Peter's response in a few moments, yet Jesus could not be deterred from this final act of love, loving his own to the very end. And so as we continue, we read after that, after he got up, after he took on the form and nature of a servant, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And so Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. Now, there's a practical element to this that is somewhat lost on us today. I would venture a guess that most of the people in this room and most of the people watching online have probably bathed within the last 48 to 72 hours. They haven't been walking around dusty streets with open sewers and all manner of filth. And we don't recline at a table as they did then. Their tables were quite low. They reclined at them. Your face was quite close to someone else's feet. So there was a practical element that it was absolute necessity that someone wash the feet. But the problem here is that there's no host for this meal. And so any one of the disciples could have taken it upon themselves to humble themselves and to wash everyone else's feet. But because no one else did, Jesus shows them the full extent of his love in taking care of this important practicality, but also in modeling for them what love in the kingdom of God really looks like. And so as I read through this, I don't know about you, but I identify with Peter. And I remember my first foot washing service. I came from a, a, a denomination that did this on Monday, Thursday, and would have the ordinance, they called it, of foot washing, where we would gather and, and you'll have an opportunity to participate or just observe that tonight. And I remember the first one, I would have rather washed every man in the room's feet than have somebody wash my feet. That was the harder part for me. And I remember an old gentleman that I looked up to a great deal coming up to me and asking if he could wash my feet. And it was a very, very powerful experience. And so I can see where Peter comes from as he begins this idea, you're my Lord, you're my Savior, you're somebody I hold in high regard. I can't allow you to humble yourself and wash my feet. And Jesus makes it very clear that he, he absolutely must. And yet, it strikes me that we are called not only to be like Christ in this scene and washing the feet of others, but we are also called to humble ourselves by allowing our feet to be washed by another. 
And do you know who washed Jesus' feet? It wasn't one of the disciples. We have to turn back a few pages to John chapter 12 to find who it was that humbled herself and washed Jesus' feet. We're told in John 12, verses 1 through 3, that six days before the Passover, just a week prior, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So there was one who washed Jesus' feet. It was Mary. Mary who sat at Jesus' feet in the famous story of Mary and Martha. Mary who chose proximity to Jesus over anything else. And it's interesting in John's account, John is the only of the four Gospels that records the washing of feet on the last night on, on Monday, Thursday. And he's also the only of the four Gospels that records the feet being anointed at Bethany. Mark and Matthew focus on the head, that there was some of this was poured over Jesus' head to anoint his head, which causes me to wonder if perhaps as he was in agony on the cross, if there wasn't still some of that sweet-smelling nard in his hair that would remind him of that beautiful act of service that was done on his behalf. But all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, do acknowledge the beauty and the intentionality of this, la- this act of service. And so we see in Christ one who not only washes feet, but allowed his to be washed and anointed as well. And so perhaps this pointed back to that humble act of service by Mary just a few days before. Now as we continue and finish this account, verses 12 through 17, we're told that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so we see that both sides of the ritual are deeply symbolic, deeply meaningful, deeply impactful, both the washing of the feet and the having your feet washed. And perhaps this is why Christ set the example for us and commanded us to follow it in verse 15. Perhaps this is why he promised that we would be blessed if we do it in verse 17. And so I encourage you, if you find the whole notion of a foot-washing service where you literally take your shoes and socks off and wash one another's feet, if you find that a little odd, a little uncomfortable, you're in very good company. It was very uncomfortable for Jesus' disciples. And yet, the words couldn't be clearer that we should do this as he has done it for us and that we will be blessed 
if we do. So there are a number of ways that this can play out. If, if a mixed setting with people you don't know that well is just terribly uncomfortable, I encourage you to set aside some time to wash your spouse's feet or your children's or your parents or someone, a friend. And don't just settle for the symbolic. See, this isn't as much of a necessity for us today as it was back then. Don't just settle for the symbolic, but look for an unmet need that you can meet in someone else's life. Love wholeheartedly and open-handedly. Because I'm convinced that in this passage, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he's setting the stage for the new command that he was going to give. And that's new command that we find in verses 34 and 35 of this same chapter is the reason that we call this Maundy Thursday. I grew up thinking it was called Monday Thursday. Anybody else ever make that mistake? It's Maundy, and Maundy is spelled M-A-U-N-D-Y because it's pointing to the Latin word mandatum, which is the word for command. When Jesus says in verse 34 and 35, a new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so he's making a new command, a new mandate that we love one another. And he's just showed us how the full extent of his love plays out. And so he's basically saying, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have washed your feet so you must wash one another's feet. As I have met a practical need in your life, so you must meet practical needs in one another's lives. As I have served you, so you must serve one another. As I have lived for you, so you must live for others, not just for yourself. And by extension, as I have laid down my very life for you, so you must lay down your life for others, for this kingdom that is coming into existence. And so, as I mentioned, you'll have opportunity tonight at the close of the service, if you'd like, to just come down this hallway in this direction to the fellowship hall, and we'll have foot washing service set up there. You can participate or you can observe. It is a powerful experience even just to observe. And I hope you'll consider being a part of it. But it is after this, after the washing of the feet, after showing them the full extent of his love, that John kind of moves on. He doesn't focus on the Last Supper. Perhaps he thought it had been covered well enough by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Personally, my favorite account of this is in Luke 22. It's the one you, if you're a regular attender here, you hear me go to it often. And so I want to read to you from Luke 22, verses 14 through 23, as we transition and kind of set our sights on the communion table. We read in Luke's account that When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, "This, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Which is understandable, but it sort of misses the point, doesn't it? Have you ever been disciplining a couple of children and they turn kind of to each other and start arguing about who started it or whose fault it was or certainly it wasn't mine? I kind of feel like that's the the tone of what has taken place here. Jesus has just done something incredibly meaningful and full of purpose and full of importance. And they miss the fact that he eagerly desired to partake in this Passover with them because they're focusing on the coming betrayal. But it occurs to me that Jesus knew about the betrayal that was coming even though He was eagerly desiring it. And so I believe that there are at least four reasons that Christ eagerly and earnestly desired to eat this Passover with his disciples in spite of the betrayal that he knew was coming right on the heels of this. The first is that it represented the fulfillment of the first Passover and the deliverance from slavery and sin. He knew that every single Passover up till this one was pointing to this one. And it's almost like if you've been waiting to give somebody a gift for a long time and you finally get to give them the gift, I think that was somewhat was going on. He knew that it would be the founding of a new Israel, a new people of God, a new kingdom of God, that it would no longer be based on lineage and tracing your birthright back. It would be based on adoption into sonship in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe it also symbolizes that Jesus was about to become the true Passover lamb. He recognized that. He understood that. He knew he was going to be sacrificed for the sins of his people. He'd been trying to tell the disciples, foretelling his death multiple times, especially in Luke's gospel, three different times leading up to this, and they hadn't paid much attention. They usually argued over who was going to be first in the kingdom. But he knew, Jesus knew, that this final Passover, after centuries of celebrating it, while looking forward to the Messiah, would now be the first Lord's Supper, not just the last Passover. And while this was previously done in anticipation of the Christ or the Messiah, from then on it would be done in remembrance of him. We say that over and over, this do in remembrance of me. So he knew it represented the fulfillment of that first Passover. He knew he was about to become the true Passover lamb. Third, Jesus knew that this meal would richly symbolize the giving of his body and blood, which we still remember today, over 2,000 years later, with over 2.4 billion people naming the name of Christ. This had an impact that none of his disciples could have imagined, and yet I believe he was at least somewhat if not fully aware. And so he knew that this would represent the giving of his body and blood for the disciples and all who would believe and receive salvation, that it would launch this ministry going forward. 
And I couldn't help but think about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of John is a miracle where he turns water into wine. And here, on the last night of his life, the very end of his ministry on earth, wine is at the forefront once again. And not only the water, but the pure, undefiled, unleavened bread of life, having lived this perfect, sinless life, having accomplished all that was set before him to accomplish through his earthly ministry, living that perfect, sinless life, he was now that unleavened bread that could be given. Given for you, he says, multiple times. Representing a reversal in the sacrificial system. You see, up until then, we brought sacrifices to God. The people of God always brought sacrifices to God at the different festivals, at the different times that were appointed. No longer are sacrifices given to God. Now God is sacrificing for his people on this Passover. And we are called to become what Paul says are living sacrifices. Sacrifices that do not have to die and be consumed, but sacrifices that live on behalf of God and his call in this world. And so the fourth reason, the fourth reason that I believe Jesus was eagerly desiring to eat this Passover with his disciples is that it looked forward to that marriage feast of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19, where the church, the bride of Christ, arrayed in splendor through the grace of Christ and his defeat, finally, forever, over sin and death, ushering in the new heaven and the new earth. He knew that this was pointing forward to that. And so you have this beautiful imagery of the first Passover and every Passover since then pointing to this Passover, this Last Supper, this Lord's Supper, which then also points forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And so I want to encourage you, in light of all this, this Passover today, this Easter weekend, may we also eagerly desire the communion and the fellowship that is available with Christ. May we eagerly desire to live lives of love and service just as he did. May we allow this Easter to be special, to be unique in some way as we fix our eyes on him. So as we transition into our time of partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're going to play a song. You're going to have some time to reflect. As Pastor Ryan said, the altars are still open. If you need a moment to confess or to repent of anything or just to lay something at the altar, you're welcome. There are even altars clear over to the side. For those of the rest of you, I'd invite you to come down the center aisle, receive the elements, return by the side aisles to your seats, hold the elements until all have been served, and then I'll return and we'll partake of them together. If you're a visitor or a guest here, we want you to know that you are welcome at the table. Wesleyan Church, we serve what is called an open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member of this church. The only requirement we have is the requirement Christ had, the text that we read tonight, that as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of him. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you look to him as Lord and Savior, and you will do this in remembrance of him, then you are welcome to partake with us. Will you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you took the opportunity you had to show us the full extent of your love. Let us not look past the humble act of service in the washing of feet. But let us reflect on both that act of service, but also the giving of your life, the instituting of a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant in your blood, which was given for us. May we do this with grateful hearts, remembering you and living for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.